Wonderful. Welcome again. Uh, good evening, uh, members and guests. It's a pleasure to have you here tonight. My name is uh, Danny Asaf, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto for this 2015-2016 season. And while I have the privilege of hosting many events, sometimes there are events that uh, have a special meaning to all of us uh, at the club and to all of you tonight. And because of that, we break the rules. And tonight is a night where we really did break the rules for our honored guest today and the launch of his book. We often, if, you've had, uh, if we've had the benefit and the pleasure of you joining us for our luncheon events, you know that format well. But today, when our friend and former president, Helen Burston, first approached me about hosting this event, it was pushing on an open door, and we thought it would be as successful as reflected today. And there was a point where I thought, is this the, will we be premiering the, uh, the Star Wars movie here, a sold-out crowd in a theater? And, uh, and of course not. We are here to hear from our uh, former premier and now author, uh, Premier Dalton McGuinty. As you know, this club does enjoy a very strong heritage of attracting leading figures who address important issues and who will talk to us about things of great relevance to us. And today's speaker is obviously a clear example of that again. And we do take pride in bringing the best of Canada to our podium. We're always committed, and we take this responsibility from season to season, and each of us who have the honor to serve as president hope we can contribute to it to provide all of our members and our guests with a diverse range of speakers and events that often provide provocative or thoughtful approaches to the things that are important to us. Also, through our programs and activities, including our youth and young leaders programs, diversity partnerships, media and social opportunities, we offer you access to dynamic political business and public figures from at home and abroad. And we thank you again for joining us tonight. Today, our guest held the office of Premier for almost 10 years, and he certainly contributed to the strength and to the enduring ability of this great province to provide not only a wonderful economic platform for all of us that are proud to call ourselves Ontarians, but also this wonderful diverse social fabric that is something to be admired and is respected worldwide. And if you look at just a few of the benchmarks that we can observe in terms of what Premier McGuinty was able to do for our province in terms of education, clearly the contributions there are something that we have all observed, whether it's the full-day kindergarten or, or increased graduation rates, something that makes, again, our province stronger both socially and economically. Similar with health care, where there was investment in hospitals and in doctors and nurses, and we benefit today from better waiting times and better medical service. And also the environment, which now has become a priority, and Ontario is a leader. And as we come up to the Paris talks and we have a new approach with the federal government, hopefully Canada will see its brightest days ahead, both in terms of environmental leadership and the benefit that will provide to our economy. So on that note, I'm pleased to welcome our guest speaker. And, at, and at, before we get to the formal part of the program, I would ask him to please draw two business cards for uh, door prizes for today's event. And Lin, Lin Chow, our executive director, will draw the names, will announce the names, sorry. 
And the first lucky winner will receive a bottle of premium Ontario Amarone-styled wine from the Foreign Affair Winery. Lynn? Our first winner is Bernadette Curtis. Bernadette, can you raise your hand? Enjoy, Bernadette. And the second lucky winner will receive a $250 airline voucher from Air Canada, whom we are proud to call our official airline sponsor of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Our winner is Perry Chow. Always good to give away a couple of prizes to warm up the crowd. Thank you. There you go. And thank you, Premier. So before I formally introduce our speaker, I would like to take a moment to express our thanks to today's generous event sponsors, Bruce Power and Labrat Breweries of Canada. Thank you very much. And also to our book sponsors, the International Association of Firefighters and the Ontario Professional Firefighters Association and Spiritus Canada. Thank you all for your generous support in helping make this event a reality. Wonderful, absolutely. I also want to take an opportunity to invite our live audience to join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDNCLBTO. And of course, you're welcome to learn more about the Canadian Club and its upcoming events by visiting us at CanadianClub.org. So today's guest speaker is our 24th Premier, and he is back in the spotlight today, not only for his accomplishments, but for authoring his new book, Making a Difference. Uh, Premier McGinty is no stranger to our podium. He has appeared several times as, as Premier, Leader of the Opposition, as MPP, and we're happy to welcome him again today. And as I said today, he joined us in his capacity as author, and we are thrilled to be part of this pre-launch event for this long-awaited book. He's an Ontario native and comes from a political family. His father, after whom he was named, served as an MPP for Ottawa South. He received his Bachelor of Science degree from McMaster University and a law degree from Ottawa U and was called to the bar in 1983. So as a lawyer, I could say, one of us that did good. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. McGinty turned his uh, attention to politics in 1990, running in the riding previously held by his father, quite a legacy, and became leader of the Liberal Party in 1996. He served as the 24th Premier of Ontario from, 19, from 2003 to 2013, and he was the first Liberal Premier to win three successive terms in over, one, uh, over 100 years. an incredible accomplishment in today's political climate. As Premier, he implemented an ambitious program of progressive policies that improved, as we've talked about, publicly funded schools, combated climate change, and transformed Ontario to better compete in the global economy. He retired from provincial politics in 2012, as we all know, and now he serves, among other things, as, president, as special advisor to the president of Desire to Learn, an Ontario education technology company, and he also serves on other corporate boards. Recently, he joined the University of Toronto, Toronto School of Public Policy and Governance as a senior fellow. 
And this evening, we, we, we are happy that he is joined in conversation with our own CTV's, CTV Canada AM's co-host, Marcy Ian. Thank you, Marcy. And at this point, I'd like to both welcome you to the stage. Our podium, the podium of the Canadian Club of Toronto is now yours. Thank you. The ever humble Mr. McGinty said, that's for you, Marcy. <laughs> And I said, no, sir, that's for you. <laughs> what a pleasure to be here with you. I, I said to Mr. McGinty, uh, we had a chance to uh, have him on the show on Canada AM last Friday, and there was a lot of news breaking, as you know, with Mali and Paris and everything else. And I had said to my producers, I want a good seven or eight minutes with him. And that seven or eight minutes turned into about three and a half, four and a half minutes, and I was distraught. And so I was all apologetic tonight and said, I'm so sorry about that. Didn't have the time I needed, but we've got lots of time tonight. And a wonderful audience. So the book, Making mm -hmm. a Difference. Mm -hmm. Why write it? <laughs> why, why, why go there? Uh, <clears throat> to, give, uh, to give some people another opportunity to take a whack at my head. Well, uh, you, you are kind of opening yourself <laughs> up. Um, I think I owed it to a number of people. I think, first and foremost, um, there have been many uh, uh, public accounts of my public life. But at best, those people can only speculate and perhaps draw inferences about what motivated me. Uh, and what my thinking was when it came to the decisions that I made. And uh, people like to think that they know their political leaders, but in fact, they only know of them. And so I thought I would tell them a bit more about myself and, and my career. And the other thing is, I am a, uh, an irrepressible and irredeemable um, idealist. And it is my hope that um, some young people somewhere in this great country uh, will consider my book a little bit of an inspiration. And I don't care what their political leaning is, although I have a preference, uh, that they will commit themselves to um, uh, making a difference through, through politics. And I think that, you know, my time away from politics, because politics is all-consuming, um, led me to come to understand that at heart, we all want to make a difference. And we've been trying to figure out since the dawn of human thought what we're doing here and what life is really all about. And wise people and great faiths have offered us various um, uh, good answers. But the best thing that we've been able to come up with is that the way that we can make a difference is to do something meaningful with our lives. And politics is just one of those avenues. So I hope that people will satisfy that inner yearning to make a difference to politics. So the book starts with the end of your political career. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting timing. And you're getting ready to make that announcement because you know you've decided that you're going to resign. Tell us how you came to that decision. Well, you know, I, the last chapter is devoted to uh, lessons in leadership. And lesson number 10 is a leader knows when to leave. And um, a theme that I kind of weave throughout the book is this notion that politics, when it came to politics, I always led with my 
heart and not my head. I think in some ways if you were to develop a list of pros and cons about politics, you'd probably end up with a pretty long list of cons and a relatively short list of pros. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's been said that the heart has its reasons that the mind can never know. And for me, I would draw into politics through a sense of idealism. So the same thing kind of worked for me on the way out. I think Lyndon Johnson said that politics is a little bit like um, a hammock. Hard to get into, even harder to get out of. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I came to the conclusion, I was at Carlene's, uh, Carlene and Eric's uh, wedding, and, and, a, and a wedding in the life of a family is a bit of a take-stock moment. Mm-hmm. A, uh, a, a wedding, uh, a, a new baby, a death in the family. We're so busy with our noses pressed right up against the canvas of our lives that we're painting that a take-stock moment gives us an opportunity to kind of pull back. And by that time, I'd been leader for almost 17 years. I'd been premier for close to 10 years. And I felt that I had a responsibility, both to myself and to my party, to introduce some some renewal, and lesson number ten, you know, says that one of the one of the uh, responsibilities a leader has is to ensure that when he or she leaves, you leave your party a fighting chance to succeed. And I thought that was the, in my estimation, my judgment, that was the the opportune time for me to uh, make that that move. Not an easy thing to do, but uh, it was the right thing for for both of us. So the day that you decided to do that, one of your brothers hands you your dad's watch. Mm -hmm. And you put your dad's watch on, and then you write about how he really was the person that shaped your political life the most. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about Dalton Sr. Well, he was a wonderful, larger-than-life character. As I write in the book, he he was as handy with a chainsaw as he was with romantic poetry. (laughs) A bit of an odd Renaissance kind of a guy. Uh, He painted his shoes white and called them his Pat Boone shoes. (laughs) Um, And fortunately, he was married to my my mother, who would often cut him off at the pass when it came to some of his crazy ideas. Uh, He wanted to buy a hovercraft, uh, for example, at one point in time. But uh, my dad was a man of tremendous conviction and principle. And, uh, uh, and he, he impressed that uh, a very strong value set uh, in me and my, my nine brothers and sisters. One of the things he used to say is, remember, it's never going to be good enough just to grow up and get a job and pay taxes. Everybody does that. You need to find a way to make a contribution, build on this incredibly rich foundation that we all have um, inherited here in, in Canada. So my dad taught me to kind of go for it, and my mother was the one who taught me how to go for it. She's the, um, uh, just has a, a really good way with people, and she knows how to uh, understand people in a way that my father couldn't. So I feel that I've, while my dad taught me what to do, it was my mom who taught me how to do it, and it was the combination that enabled me to find whatever successes I enjoyed in politics. And as there was kind of reason to, to kind of look back at life during that moment you're leaving, and you, you told us about your parents and, and your mom and your dad, but being one of ten kids, you bore a lot of responsibility. Was that responsibility that you welcomed, and how did it shape you later on? Well, it was the only ni- life that I knew, so um, um, I embraced it, and I was the... I guess in some ways I was kind of the dutiful oldest son, but on the other, on, on the other hand, I, I really enjoyed the, uh, the responsibilities. So my dad was 
And when you have 10 kids, a university uh, professor's salary doesn't really pay for all the bills. So he would um, teach night school and summer school, and then we got into a whole bunch of little businesses on, on the side. Uh, and I thought this was all interesting and exciting. So we, we got into, we, we started a summer camp. And my brothers and sisters and I uh, worked there for nine or ten years, kept us all out of mischief and, you know, uh, in, engaged and in, in learning about leadership, right? We uh, bought and sold firewood. Uh, we bought and sold manure. And Terry said that was the first hint she had that I was going into politics. <laughs> Because Terry worked at the camp, too. <laughs> Terry worked yeah, at the Terry camp as well, camp. yeah. Um, and uh, bought and sold fixer-uppers and those kinds of things. So it was a, it was a very, um, the McGinty family was, was an act of enterprise uh, beyond just kind of uh, living together as a family. And, you know, one of the things my dad impressed upon us as well is you've got to stick together. And I, I tell a story in here when we, uh, it was the only time that we drove to Florida and we, we were, went there for Christmas and my parents said that um, instead of Santa Claus coming this year, we're all going to go to Florida. So you can tell it wasn't put up a vote uh, because the kids <laughs> would have had something else in mind. So anyway, we drove there. And at the time, we didn't have the two youngest. So we were only 10 people in the car. Mm-hmm. And in those days, you know, there were no seatbelt laws. So uh, we just kind of moving around there at free will. Although my dad was a remarkable man because he could do, you know, uh, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour on the highway and comfortably locate a child in the third seat. <laughs> uh, and not for purposes of caressing them. No. Anyway, we got to Georgia uh, and uh, we filed out, hit the washroom, back in the car, back on the road. And about 50 miles later, my mother says, where's Michael? And we thought that, I said, well, we thought he was up there with you. She said, well, I thought he was back there. So we hit the brakes, turned around and picked him up. And uh, <laughs> Michael was four years old. Yeah. Not good. Now, times have changed, Marcy, because today you would be arrested. Absolutely. And where was my, at a gas station, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He left Michael at the gas station. So an attendant was taking care of Michael, waiting for you to come back. Yeah. 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 But these were all good, formative uh, experiences. <laughs> Tragically, your dad passed away, and you write about finding him on the driveway and being there that day with your mom, with your family. And fast forward to the funeral, and Premier at the time, David Peterson, speaks at that funeral. And then after that funeral, as you are gathered with your siblings, says to you, and this is the pivotal question, says to you, mean collectively, you, well, are, are one of you guys going to take over your father's writing? Mm-hmm. And therein started an interesting conversation. Right. The, 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 um, the issue was never whether one of us would, would vie to succeed uh, my dad in politics, but rather which one of us would. And uh, it's just purely as a matter of timing that it suited me best. Uh, the only other one who expressed genuine, uh, a genuine desire at that time was my brother David, who is now a member of parliament uh, in Ottawa. So it all, it all worked out each, each in our own way. So 
um, I was I was pleased. In fact, you know, if I might, um, Marcy, I I marked a few passages which I think that would help kind of take folks through a little bit of of my um, kind of evolution as 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 a politician. And I'm going to read you four separate passages. They're not too long, so don't worry. Um, but they give you a sense of how I approached uh, politics. And the first one is just after I was elected, uh, um, I had some spare time, so I used to walk uh, the halls of Queen's Park at, at night. I recall my first few days roaming the halls of Queen's Park. I especially enjoyed walking there in the evenings when the place was empty, the lights were dim, and the faces of previous generations of politicians stared down at me from their pictures and paintings on the walls. The architecture of the Ontario legislature is not particularly warm. You might even call it austere. Nonetheless, there is a quiet majesty to the place that spoke to me of the rich history in which I was now a modest participant. I quickly fell in love with the place. In truth, I fell in love with the idea and the promise of the place, just as much as I did with the place itself. It was a place where Ontarians could come together and at our best do great things for ourselves and our children. So that's how I was feeling when I first had my first uh, brush with um, kind of the physicality of, of, of Queen's Park. And then, almost 25 years ago today, I delivered my very first speech in the House. And, and now I'm getting on to the notion of leadership. So I said in that speech, I believe there is implicit in each member's election to this parliament a mandate for leadership. I believe also that if we sit in this house merely as human barometers of public opinion, that is not leadership. Leadership requires <laughs> that we enlist the people of Ontario to our causes, causes espoused by us because of their unremitting merit. So I like the notion of politics, kind of find it inspiring. I'm now talking about leadership. Well, the next thing you know, I run for leadership of the party, and I win. Now, let me tell you how I felt about that. In the early morning of December 1, 1996, the day after the convention, after saying goodbye to Terry and the kids, and after thanking all the candidates and delegates at a morning speech, in other words, after the party was truly over, I walked alone from Maple Leaf Gardens to my Bay Street condo. I was victorious, but I had never felt more alone and more uncertain. I wondered just what I'd got myself into. I'd been trained to accept responsibility since the day I was born, but that didn't mean I was immune to the weight of it. I had to live up to the expectations of thousands of party members. I had to mount a respectable opposition to the Conservative government. I had to inspire voters' confidence in the Liberal Party and in me as its leader. At the same time, of course, I didn't want to neglect my own family. I felt a heavy burden. It was going to take a lot of work. I would have to grow, and so would our party. Now, fast forward. I lost in 99, won in 2003, won in 2007. And then in 2008, we were... Uh, hit by the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. So now I'm kind of in my stride, hitting my stride. And I said, we're going to have to adopt the HST. And I can tell you that the, uh, a lot, the best political advice I had, of course, was to stay clear of that, stay far away from it. 
The HST had a reputation as a third rail in Canadian politics. Touch it and you're dead. I knew I was about to create my own biggest political headache since breaking my promise not to raise taxes. It would have been easy to put this one off to another day in another government, but I hated the thought of merely passively presiding over events. As I saw it, my job as Premier was to do what I honestly believed needed doing, and the recession demanded strong medicine. We needed more than economic stimulus for today. We needed a stronger foundation for growth tomorrow. So I picked those passages because I think they speak to kind of the evolution of me in terms of my growth. I, I've got this very kind of romantic, idealistic um, notion of politics, I say that really you've got, to, you've got to aspire to demonstrate leadership. I win the job of leadership. I am very tentative and uncertain about um, how I'm going to manage that new responsibility, and I feel, I feel the weight of it. But by the time um, 2009 comes around, I'm now kind of hitting my stride, and, and I'm doing what I wanted to do, Marcy, which was to always to lead a progressive activist government. I just don't believe that um, we should, as liberals, ever kind of passively preside over the quiet evolution of events. We should be leading in an activist kind of way. And just to give you one example, uh, uh, I heard the Premier Notley say, and I commend her for this, that she's going to shut down coal. Well, back in 2003, we made that commitment. We did that three or four years before uh, an inconvenient truth began to air on TV and in, and in theaters. And as a result of that, now, we've taken the equivalent of 7 million cars off our roads. We had, at our peak, 52 smog days in Ontario. The last two years, we've had two. Keep in mind that Ontario coal-generating stations were emitting more greenhouse gases at their peak than the entire Alberta oil and gas sector. So we were ahead of the curve. I'm glad to say that the rest of the country is now going to catch up to Ontario when it comes to dealing with climate change in a serious way. You had to come to grips, though, with the idealism and that clashing with political realities so many times. Yeah. Is it possible to do all things well? No. Good answer. No, you can't. You, can't, you, can't, you know, I, I quote Immanuel Kant, a great philosopher. Uh, he said that um, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. And governments, including mine, was made up exclusively of people, human beings, with all their noble strengths and all our contemptible weaknesses. I'm also mindful of something else that my dad said. He said, what matters most in every age are the ideals that inspire our efforts and the integrity of those efforts. So it's your value set that counts, and it's the, the sincerity of the struggle that you bring to do the right things, uh, you know, in your privileged position of serving others uh, in government. And I, I talk about the difference between uh, reputation and character. Reputation is only who people think you are. Character is who you truly are. And my advice to politicians and aspiring politicians and political leaders is protect your character. Now, how do you do that? 
It's not a complicated matter. Do what you think is right. I took a poll every night, stood in front of the mirror, and asked myself whether or not I was doing the right thing. So whether it was the issue of relocating gas plants. And that's in there. And I have to say, I have to just interrupt for a second. When I first got a hold of it's all in there. <laughs> when I when I first got a hold of this book, I thought, yeah, yeah, you know what? Family's lovely and the ideals and everything else. Da, da, da. And then I got to this chapter and it was gas plant, e hell, all of it's in there. Yeah. It's all in there. And you actually say failings. You you use the word mistake here and there. Yeah. And I have to say it's quite refreshing. I was surprised. Why did you decide to put that stuff in there? Well, I think it's important to be honest about um, the nature of, of the challenges that we're called upon to confront um, and, um, and how I came up short from time to time. And, and I th- but I think what really counts, and I, and I want to confront that you know, head on. I've been doing some media lately, and I'm, I'm pleased to be able to speak to those kinds of issues. But I do distinguish as well between um, issues of passing interest and initiatives of enduring importance. Now, it may be 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, they'll be talking about gas plants, maybe. But I think much more likely, they're going to say, thank God we shut down coal in Ontario. I think they're going to say... I think they're going to say, I, I think they're going to say, we want to give credit to that uh, generation of Ontarians who were there back uh, in, in the early 2000s, who set aside 1.8 million acres of green belt in perpetuity for families to enjoy. And I think they're going to say that, uh, you know, being the first in North America to adopt full-day kindergarten was progressive and far-sighted, and no one would ever dare reverse that kind of a policy. So it's true. There are issues that are, that are more um, interesting um, on any particular day. But I think initiatives of enduring importance are what history will use to judge me and um, my government. There are many. There are many who would say, and I challenge them at every turn, that young people aren't engaged when it comes to politics, that they tune out, that they don't care, that there is no activism when it comes to the young people in this country. And I would say, well, just look at the results of the last election, and that's certainly not the case. You choose to write, and I would almost call it a love letter, a leadership love letter. The epilogue to this book is lessons in leadership, and you're talking to young people, and you are asking them to become engaged, and you're telling them why they should. Why was that important to include? I think that it's a, um, um, I, I had the privilege of serving uh, in a position of leadership for an extended period of time, and I didn't feel right just kind of like, Here's the baton. I'm I'm out of here. Uh, it was fun while while it lasted, and I'm going to do other things now. I think I've got a responsibility, and it's true that a lot of people uh, kind of protect themselves with a thin veneer of cynicism because they don't want to be let down. They don't want to be hurt. They don't want to suffer some kind of a loss. 
But the appeal that I always made to Ontarians was informed by my sense that uh, we're aspirational. We want to be bigger than just ourselves. We want to build something of lasting value. And I talk about the, you know, the, through looking through my parents and, and the work that they did and seeing other parents, my sense is that the foundation for all human progress has been the loving commitment on the part of the older generation to build a better, safer, happier world for the younger generation. And we all have that in us. And then we apply this layer of cynicism to ourselves so, so we're protected against people who might let us down. But I think deep down, we want to make a difference. And the responsibility of, of progressive leadership is, is to appeal to that. Lincoln called, you know, appealing to the better angels of our nature. People want to do the right kinds of things. And I, I found, I found uh, proof in that. I see you know, uh, a number of my colleagues here in, in government uh, with whom I had the pleasure to work, and we did some hard things. When we raised taxes back in 2004, people were unhappy with us, but we had time to explain to them why we were doing this. And we thought, you know, we made it very clear, this is not about boosting our popularity, right? <laughs> this is about boosting our revenues so that we can, we can afford better health care. At the time of the next election, 2007, you're going to have an opportunity to make a choice. This is not about us and our popularity. It's about doing the right thing for the people of Ontario and our families. It's pretty cut and dry. Make the choice. Whatever you decide, we'll live with it. And it's amazing. People, you know, we dismiss everybody as cynical. And sometimes, you know, if you take a look at some of the, uh, some of the vitriol that is... Um, uh, made obvious in, in you know, we've, we've created more opportunities through social media now for people to do that. Um, you you can get you can get the wrong sense of where people are at and what they want to do. Mm. And people figure, you know, my dad said you get about 85 years, and then you're dead for a pretty long time. <laughs> so what are you going to do with your life? How many people really want to be the richest person in the graveyard? I think most people want to make a difference. Hence the title for the book and hence the appeal that I make to, to Ontarians uh, that I did make to them during the course of my leadership and the appeal now, that enduring appeal that I make to young people. And if you take a look at the good people who got into politics uh, in this last federal election um, and people with a strong sense of idealism and a commitment to their community, a commitment to public service, a commitment to building something better, a better, safer, happier world for the next generation. It's nothing less than inspirational. And this manifested itself in all the parties. So I say the future's in, in good hands. And I think those of us who had the benefit of being in positions of leadership have a continuing responsibility now to speak to, to young people about where they need to pick up where we left off. I'm partial to a young man by the name of O'Regan that's representing Mount Pearl in St. John's, Newfoundland <laughs> right now. Uh, I, I have to say, when I was listening to you about, uh, talk about your dad and, and you know, that whole, what are you going to do with my life, your life, rather, I was thinking about my dad, and, and he always said, what are you going to do with your dash? And the dash is that dash between the time you're born and the time mm. you die. What are you going to do with your dash? And it's the same thing. I could talk to you all night. Lynn is telling me I have to wrap because we have to take questions from you and we want to. So hopefully you have some good ones. 
Uh, I will moderate said question period. Is there anybody? We've got, we've got mics at hand. Please don't be shy. This is your chance. I see hands going up, some back there. One right here. <laughs> A man who needs no introduction. There you go. <laughs> Howard? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Dalton, you come a long way, baby. And uh, just want to congratulate you so much on behalf of everyone here and all of Ontarians for uh, a great career and uh, putting it on paper. Is really looking forward to reading it. Um, a month ago, we elected a guy who also was told wasn't up to the job. We didn't mention him tonight. Just wonder your thoughts. Uh, you know, you went through a lot. A lot of people who helped you helped this new guy become prime minister. Be interested in your thoughts of what uh, what was going through your mind election night and what advice you have for him today. Sure. I know that many people in this hall uh, were involved in the last federal election, and we have a number of members of parliament here. Uh, any members of parliament here? Arnold here. Arnold here? Yeah. All I can say is we're leaving you a perfect country. Don't screw it up. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we, uh, we all played a role, and I was really proud of Premier Wynne and her uh, unabashed commitment uh, to the federal liberals. And keep in mind what the party was like in 1996 when I inherited of uh, the party, there was a shortage of money, there was a shortage of ideas, a shortage of, of um, energy, and a shortage of momentum. Fast forward after the 1999, 2003, 2007, 2011, 2014 electoral victories. Now we have the strongest liberal machine in the country. And that was turned over. turned over to the benefit of, of uh, Justin Trudeau, now Prime Minister Trudeau. So um, I don't know about you folks, but um, uh, Marcy, when I was after this victory, whether it's listening to cabbies or overhearing chatter in a restaurant, everybody seemed to be walking uh, with, a, with a new bounce in their step. And I spoke with uh, uh, Gerald Butts, and I said, he's always been, he's, apparently he's Jerry now, he's always Gerald to me. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, I uh, had, had to get through his agent first. Um, and uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and the, you know they had a solid they had a solid platform. But the point I made to Gerald was, I know that you're really committed when you get in because you want to d deliver on your policies. But I think what really struck Canadians was not so much the policies, but a new, a new era of possibilities. And they think that we could do some great things together. We haven't thought that way in a long, long time. And I think if you ever give people the choice between looking down in despair and looking up in hope, we're an aspirational people, uh, we're going we're gonna to go with the hope message. So I think that they've got all kinds of opportunities. I, my advice is um, take your time. Um, do what you think is right. And understand the hardest election the next election.
right? That's when you've amassed your own uh, record. Uh, so uh, in, enjoy it and, and understand that, that they have tremendous goodwill. Uh, they have a lot of support from right across the country now. So I'm really, uh, it's, it's more than, you know, I was really proud when he built his cabinet and I had the chance to chat with uh, uh, a woman who said to me, you know, it's not just a, a gender shift. It's a generational shift. And I'm good with that. I'm really good with that. Because so, you might think, well, geez, I'm, I'm, I'm losing. You know, it's my time has kind of passed me by. And it hasn't. Uh, but <laughs> the, but I'm, really, I'm really proud of the younger gen- generation who are stepping up now and taking on these responsibilities and helping us assert ourselves um, in the world. I'm just going to relate a little anecdote to, as to um, because I think it's, 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 it's telling. So I spent the year at Harvard, and I was a fellow there, and I was in an international program set up by Henry Kissinger. And there was just 12 of us, and I was the only Canadian. And one of my colleagues was a, uh, a lovely, very accomplished European diplomat. And he said to me, he said, you know, Mr. McGinty, not that long ago, whenever we small European countries were grappling with complicated international issues. Sooner or later, somebody at the table always said, well, what are the Canadians doing? And then he put his hand on my shoulder and he says, I've got to tell you, we no longer ask that question. So we've lost some of our moral stature. We've lost some of our standing in the world. But I'm very confident we're going to get that back now. Premier, it's John Campion. John. Um, I want you to give to the young people, when you're sitting alone in the Premier's office, what was the best day of spiritual ascendancy, and what was the day that you despaired the most? It's tough to specify one, but I I can tell you that... um, Moving ahead with full-day kindergarten was really important to me. Uh, as, you know, I tell a story in here. My, on my dad's side, my grandmother was married at the age of 16. She married a man who was 32, and they both had the grade 8 education. And my mom came from a, uh, a single-family home, where she was the youngest of, second youngest of four little girls, and her mother worked really, really hard to uh, try to make ends meet. And then I, two generations later, I am... Premier of the greatest province, the best country in the world. How did that happen? Access to quality, publicly funded education for me and my nine brothers and sisters. So I always felt a tremendous obligation that I owed to other kids from whatever socioeconomic background to ensure that they can become the very best that they can be. And Terry, uh, a, a kindergarten teacher, would tell me that from time to time, She'd have a student come into the class in kindergarten, and some a child could read at a grade two level. Another child would come into the class who'd never been sat on a parent's lap and been read to. So there was a huge divergence in terms of where they found themselves at that point in time. So we needed to ensure that all kids had an opportunity to uh, develop as quickly as they could and to prepare them for the more formal learning that takes place uh, in in grade one in, in some ways. So full-day kindergarten was was really important to me. I think the despair, I think, was when we were hit by the recession 
and close to 250,000 Ontarians lost their lost their jobs, and uh, you know, a job is more than just an income. It's how we see ourselves. It's how we identify ourselves. It's how our children see us. So for somebody in manufacturing, for example, 45 years of age, they've got a mortgage and uh, their industry is, is, is winding up. It's, it's traumatic. And um, I, I think the, the reason that it was so, that there was so much despair at the time is that notwithstanding who I called upon looking for advice, nobody had an answer. Nobody had ever seen anything like this during their lifetime. They didn't know exactly what to do. But finally, we came together, the, pro, the, uh, the uh, premiers and the prime minister, on a very rare occasion when we came together with the prime minister. And we decided it was important to stimulate the economy, which we did. Thank you for that question. We're going to go over here, please. Right up here? Oh, back here. Thank you so much. Uh, how are you this evening? Good, how are you doing? Uh, uh, very good, thank you. As one of the proud members of the OPP that are here this evening, and it's a testament to a lot of us that are here tonight to honour you and to uh, uh, let you know that uh, we, we really enjoyed the time that we had with you and, and the time we had with you really made a difference in our lives. And on a lighter note, how's the golf game? <laughs> uh, Golf game was never going to be as good as I want it to be. Um, <laughs> but it's great to have you here, Graham. I had, um, Terry and I were blessed with uh, a security detail of fine, uh, fine men and women. And many days I ended up spending more time on the road with the OPP uh, people. I'll just share one, with you one little story. Um, so we're up in northern Ontario and we're on a canoe trip. So I've got two sons in the canoe there, me and another son here, and two OPP guys behind us. <laughs> so we're going through a narrow creek, uh, and we're way up north. Like a five-day trip, we saw three people. We are way up north. And we're going through a narrow creek, and suddenly comes crashing out of a very dense bush a huge bull moose, and he's very unhappy with us. Uh-oh. Right? So this was the mating season, and we were invading his territory and all this stuff. So I've got sons in the canoe ahead of us who are away from him. So this moose is just opposite me in my canoe. So they're quietly paddling there. I look back at the OPP, they're quietly back paddling. So I said, guys, you've got the guns. They said, they're too small. They wouldn't have any effect on the moose. Good to know, good to know. All right, we've got, Lynn, one more. We've got time for, this is the last question of the night. No pressure, but make it good, please. Thank you. That's number one, uh, Dalton. Thank you. Um, Yes, you made a big difference. You uh, made a deep difference. Uh, I think for every Ontarian, and for certainly every nurse in Ontario. And I want to simply share a very small anecdote that says a lot about you. In the many one-to-ones, Dalton used to take the phone, call on the cell, and say, time for a one-to-one. Tell me what you think the way it is. 
And in one of those one-to-ones, I believe I was discussing about whatever it was, minimum wage, the environment, was not about more nurses, actually. And trying to pick up your curiosity and your interest on the issue, I said, don't you want to leave a legacy? And you answered to me, I want to do what's right, what's the right thing to do. And you spoke about that just tonight again. And you did a lot of the right things to do. And I also appreciate in teaching leadership to the younger generation, the courage to acknowledge when it was not the right thing and that that's fine, that we just move together again. And to your comment, I actually voted just before the elections uh, because I was traveling. And for the first time in many years when I came back, which was after I felt I was coming back home actually, for the first time in many years. So one question, what do you miss, if anything? The, uh, there's a lot that I miss about uh, politics, and it really is true, and I think Bill Davis said it originally, that the best day in the private sector can't come close to the worst day as premier. There is an energy and um, a sense of the possibilities um, to be found there that is incredibly stimulating and very satisfying. Um, and I and like this whole idea of kind of lending shape to the future by influencing public policy today. I, I don't miss the partisanship, and I express as a regret in the book that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to arrest the gradual and steady decline of politics into an excess of partisanship. Partisanship is a healthy aspect of a vibrant democracy because it brings it brings about a collision of ideas, uh, which is a good thing. But if we start talking past each other, if we start always putting political advantage ahead of policy achievement, that doesn't serve the public interest. And uh, I think that in too many instances we've 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 gone too far, and we need to find a way to kind of pull ourselves back from that from that uh, abyss. I want to conclude on a, on, a, on a couple of comments. One is a story about my favorite nurse, my mother. And um, uh, my mom is a uh, wonderful, um, strong uh, individual. And she had, uh, I relate how she had fallen down the uh, stairs, this was a number of years ago, and broken her hip. So she's lying prone, flat on her back. She gets me on the phone. She says, do you think it's possible for them to send an unmarked ambulance to get me? <laughs> she didn't want the neighbors to know that she was getting old and that she had fallen. I said, Mom, I can't do that. <laughs> so my mother, the next thing I hear on the phone is, Anne-Marie, get me my lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> the last point I want to make is uh, I want to thank all of you. Uh, I had the privilege of standing on your shoulders, and you never dropped me, not once, and I'm very, very grateful for all the support that you, that you lent to me over the years. And I've talked about uh, some of my uh, observations and experiences, and I purpose, purposely... Uh, injected some levity and humor into this. But I wouldn't want to 
I'll leave you with the impression, and young people with the impression, that you need to steal yourself for battle. Right? You need to demonstrate, you need to bring a lot of courage and persistence and perseverance to this enterprise. Because for every good idea that you have, there are going to be a hundred people who tell you you can't do it. So you have to believe in yourself uh, and you have to be inspired by the people you're privileged to serve. And armed with that sense of perspective and um, a sense of humor, uh, it's remarkable that what we can achieve when we work together. It is, I will just say, it's a, it's a fantastic read. And Mr. McGinty said to me a little earlier, have you read many political kind of autobiographies? And I said, yeah, you know what, I have. But this is unlike anything I've ever read because I laughed a lot. It was honest, but I also learned a lot. So thank you. And thank you for the privilege of being here up here. And you've been fantastic. Thank, thank you. you for your questions. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that really did that really did live up to its billing, and uh, just a few additional words of thanks to, to Premier McGinty. It was a very uh, uh, lot of candor and a lot of interesting observations. And there's no doubt, Premier McGinty, when we look at your legacy and your leadership, we look at the perspective that you provided us today. Looking back, clearly you left this province much better than you found it, and your record speaks for itself. And looking ahead. In writing this book, Making a Difference, it's clear the contribution you will make to the future and the future leaders of this province will be something remarkable, and we can only hope that they're inspired by your leadership, by your ideals, and will continue on the path of making this province even better for all the next generation, better, better, finding it better in the future after they have participated uh, than when they found it as well. So thank you very much. And, and Marcy, Marcy Ian, thank you very much for bringing your skill and your experience to the stage today and providing us with a, a window into a great conversation with one of our most remarkable premiers. And I would like to thank, again, our sponsors, Bruce Power and Labatt, Labatt Breweries of Canada, and our book sponsors, the International Association of Firefighters, the Ontario Professional Firefighters Association, and Spiritus Canada. Thank you again. One other note, if you've received your book, they've all already been signed. If you would enjoy a personalized note, uh, Premier McGinty will be on the second floor and happy to, uh, to sign those books and personalize them for you. Again, thank you very much for attending. A pleasure to have you on this great occasion and this event. This concludes tonight's program, which was live-streamed by MediaEvents.ca. And uh, thank you for being such an attentive and engaging audience. Thank you again. Good night. <laughs>